All right, good morning. Good to have you all here for our questions class. Uh, let me just say up front that um, we are sort of on a time limit today. Because of the building walkthrough and everything's turning in 45 minutes, uh, I'm going to have to release you officially at 12.30 in 45 minutes. Now, that doesn't mean that some of you want to hang around and ask me questions. I will stay and answer your questions. So here's what we're going to try to do. In 45 minutes, I'm going to try to give you as much information as I possibly can uh, on what we have advertised we want to talk about this morning, which is behind the veil, uh, why Christians and Muslims do not see eye to eye. And we want to try to also, in that 45 minutes, give you some time for questions as well, if you have any. Remind me, because this is being taped, that if you ask a question, for me to repeat it so that the people who are listening to this eventually uh, can hear the question as well. So they're like, why is the answer in that? Um, and th- before we pray and get into it this morning, let me just say thank you all for coming. Um, I just want to say that we're trying with our questions classes at Cornerstone to come up with topics that we think will be of interest to people, that they're going to want to know about. And so when we started down this road, I obviously thought this would be an interest only because I know for me it's an interest because I can't watch the television set in my lifetime now. I can't open up a newspaper. I can't go anywhere and turn anywhere without being confronted with something about what's going on in the Middle East, about the nation of Islam, about the Muslim faith and all of that. It's all over the place and it's going to continue to be all over the place. So uh, it is something that I think that it's just a, a, a topic that we need to talk about and that we, within the church, need to get some kind of a handle on. Now, I don't uh, also profess to be some kind of expert in, in this area, all right? What I have learned, I have learned from a former, former Sunni Muslim who is now actually president of the seminary that I went to. Uh, he not only converted to Christ, but he is now president of a uh, Bible seminary. And uh, so he has shared this stuff with me, and I am just passing it on to you again uh, for a couple different reasons. There's three primary things I want to accomplish this morning. Number one, I want to try to give us a frame of reference for what we're talking about here, okay? Again, we watch the TV, we hear words, we hear words like jihad and all of this, and Sunni and Sufi uh, and Shia Muslims, and what's the differences and all of this. I want to try to give us some kind of frame of reference as we get bombarded by this information. Secondly, I want to try to clarify the differences between Islam and Christianity. Because unlike what some people will try to portray today, there are huge differences. And in fact, they're mutually exclusive uh, to one another. And then finally, I want to offer a strategic approach If God allows you or I an opportunity to talk to a Muslim about our faith or about God or whatever, I want to try to give you some some things that has been shared with me by former uh, people of of the Muslim faith that they think would be very helpful in building bridges uh, to Muslims to share Christ with them. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about that. Uh, Let me just introduce myself. My name is Jeff Royce. I am a teaching pastor here at Cornerstone. Uh, I do the Mind Bible Study on Tuesday night. 
Uh, I have like four or five different Bible studies throughout the week here at Cornerstone. The women's on Wednesday morning, a Friday night married group, uh, my Sunday small church, and then the questions class. I'm going to be doing some stuff with men's ministry. So again, try to just teach the Bible. That's my passion, to teach the Word of God and get people connected to the Word of God. And again, we're glad you're here. Let's just ask the Lord to be with us for the few moments we have this morning, and then uh, we'll dive into our topic this morning, all right? Lord God, we thank you so much for being with us today, and we just pray that everything that we share here this morning would just bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would share this in the right spirit, with the right heart attitude, And that, Father, I pray that in no way anyone here today would think that I am being disrespectful or derogatory towards any other human being or anything like that. But, Lord, at the same time, we are not going to apologize for what we believe and for the differences of our beliefs with other belief systems around the world. And so, Lord, just use this, hopefully, to uh, help us maybe navigate the times in which we live. Because, Lord, we now live in a world where this is what we're going to hear about. We're going to hear about the nation of Islam. We're going to hear about the Muslim faith. We're going to hear about things of the Middle East. And it's only going to continue to intensify until Jesus returns. And so, Father, help us to just have some kind of better frame of reference, hopefully, as we leave here today um, than when we came in. And, Lord, we'll just give you all the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's where I want to start this morning. Um, Yeah, as we have people coming in, would you guys mind maybe if you're on the edge scooching to the middle? That way, or some of you, I I guess over here, thank you. Thank you. We just have some folks coming in. We want to make sure we've got seats for them. All right? Here's where I want to start. The card that you have seen in the bulletin the last couple weeks, before this morning, behind the veil... Why Muslims and Christians don't see eye to eye. I want to start just by saying this. Islam and Christianity are mutually exclusive. All right? They both claim to have the truth. And yet, in their belief system, what that truth is contradicts and cancels each other out. And so again, I want to start there because we live in such a pluralistic society that really promotes the fact that, well, all religions and all faiths basically lead to the same place, and, and aren't we all really worshiping the same God, whether His name is Allah or Jehovah or Jesus Christ? Isn't it all really the same thing, just packaged a little bit differently for people of different cultures? The answer is unequivocally no. If God does exist, he's not going to contradict himself. And so the teachings in in one place is not going to contradict the teachings of another place. They, They can't coexist. And if there is truth, and I guess maybe that's the real question, is there truth? Because if there's truth, then the implication is there's error. There's non truth. And so Jesus claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the light. So if there's a claim of truth over here, and Jesus himself claimed truth, then that automatically implies there's got to be error, and anything that contradicts that truth then cannot be truth as well. That's where we're coming at from this, all right? So I guess what you come down to is this. 
There's only a couple different conclusions that you can draw from that truth. That the Quran is the Word of God, that the Bible is the Word of God, or that neither is the Word of God, and that we have to reject it all. Because we have to come to that conclusion if we truly believe that God has not spoken authoritatively about anything and we've just chosen not to go there and accept that there's any truth out there. And of course, there's a lot of people that believe that as well, but that's another subject for a questions class, all right? Um, the other sort of thing I wanted to throw out at the beginning is this. A lot of people today think that the conflict of the Middle East and what's going on over there uh, is something new. And we have to realize that this conflict actually started back in the book of Genesis in the Bible. And that the uh, Islam-Christian struggle goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. But even after that, uh, there's a couple key dates that really defined the struggle and the tension between Christianity and Islam. In 691 A.D., the Dome of the Rock Mosque was erected in Jerusalem. That was a defining point in the struggle. In 715 A.D., the Great Mosque was erected in Damascus, Syria. Again, a very defining moment in this struggle. In 732, as Islam was pushing across Europe and was checked at what's called the Battle of Tours in France, uh, that was a defining moment because Islam was spreading, 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 and at the Battle of Tours, that's where Islam was checked. It was no longer then going to move further west into Europe, and then it advanced, or I shouldn't say advanced, and it, it fell back and retreated back to where uh, it is today. The Crusades, huge. I mean, both for Christians and, and Muslims, uh, the Crusades uh, are an ugly period uh, in this tension and struggle and conflict, and really has been uh, in the centuries. In four, 1453, the Ottoman Turks conquered the Byzantine Empire, again a defining moment, in 1492, the Roman Catholic uh, Church was once again enforced in Spain, which had it not been for a long time. Spain was under the control of uh, the Muslims. And then in 1914 to 1918, uh, the Ottoman rulers made a fatal miscalculation in joining the empire's fortunes with those of Kaiser Wilhelm in uh, the precursors of World War I. So again, I'm just sharing all that to say, look, what we're seeing today is not just something that started in our lifetime. It goes all the way back to the beginning of time, and there's been key dates and key things that have happened that has intensified the struggle and caused the struggle to continue to burn over the years between Christianity and Islam. The other thing, though, I think it is important as we talk about this subject is we need to begin with some understanding. And the reason I say that is because even in 2002... The President of the United States and his advisors committed what I consider to be a big religious faux pas. Uh, what did they do, even though they were trying to reach out to Muslims in November of 2002? Well, the President, if you, some of you may remember this, uh, it's, even though it's been four years ago now, the President hosted an, an iftar. And the iftar is an evening meal during the holy month of Ramadan, which we're going to talk about in a minute. 
which starts on November 6th and goes to December 6th for Muslims, all right? And as he hosted this evening meal at the White House, at the beginning of an iftar is a prayer that is recited pledging clear devotion of every person at the table to Allah. Well, obviously, the president and his advisors didn't really understand what was going on there. Surely no one told him that by joining in this prayer, he was actually pledging himself to the Muslim God. And we know that uh, President Bush has been pretty candid in confessing his faith in Jesus Christ. So it just shows the errors that can be made when we try to build bridges and find bridges to Islam without understanding Islam, without understanding the Muslim worldview. And so again, that's why understanding can be very, very important. So with that said, let me just share with you, for those of you, again, that don't maybe know, the five fundamentals or pillars of faith of Islam. Okay, They have five fundamental things that are the backbone of their faith. One, the creed. And the creed is simply this. There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. That is something that they often repeat, and that is something that is emphasized throughout their faith. The creed, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Secondly, prayer is very key. It is one of their pillars of faith. In fact, the word mosque literally means a place of prostration. So when they go to pray at a mosque, uh, it goes along with that. That's a pillar of their faith, their prayer time. Almsgiving is another thing. We, we would call it tithing, okay? Uh, they call it almsgiving. And uh, it is just a pillar of their faith. Next, Ramadan. And again, Ramadan means fast. And so during the month of November 6th to December 6th, uh, they fast, and it's just a very uh, holy month that is set aside in their calendar. Uh, it honors the arrival of the Quran, and that's primarily what they're focusing on. They are, they are honoring the arrival of the Quran through the prophet Muhammad during the month of Ramadan. So that's coming up here in just like another week. They will start that November. Oh, is it October to November? Excuse me, just finished. So I was a month late. Okay, I apologize for that. Oh, it rotates. Okay, thank you. I did not know that. Um, and then the pilgrimage to Mecca is the fifth, all right, where every Muslim must make this journey once during their lifetime. Uh, the reason they go to Mecca is because it is the birthplace of Muhammad in Saudi Arabia and considered to be the holiest of cities, all right? So that's the five fundamentals. Creed, prayer, almsgiving, Ramadan, pilgrimage. Now the other thing is the Islamic sects. One of the, uh, one of the criticisms that Muslims have of Christians is that we have weakened our faith and our belief system because we are so divided out into sects. And when they talk about that, they're saying, you know... Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterian and Catholic, and they just look at all these different labels and they say, you have weakened what you believe because you guys can't even agree on what you believe either, and you've divided out into all these what we call denominations. Well, 
I would say back to them, ah, okay, I'll buy that to a point, but you guys have sex within your belief system too. That's the difference between, say, what you hear, the Sunni Muslim and a Shia or Shiite Muslim. And how did we get those differences? There's also Sufi Muslims. In fact, 98% of all those who, um, how do I want to say this? Uh, of all Muslims fall into usually one of those three groups. There are other smaller groups that make up like 2%. But you're either going to find most are going to be either a Sunni, a Shia, or a Sufi. And I'm going to explain them in just a minute. What's the differences? First of all, let me say why this came about. When Muhammad died, 691 A.D., 7, I can't remember the exact date, he never left any instructions for how his successor or who was to succeed him or how that was to all take place. So you can imagine, here's Muhammad, the prophet of Allah, comes on the scene, gives people the revelation from God, the Quran, uh, establishes some other things, but then dies without really explaining in detail what's to happen after he dies. So here, the followers then of Muhammad were left with, what do we do? And that's where these different camps, especially the two of them, came into play. The Sunni Muslims believed that there were a group of teachers, caliphs, whatever, experts, who we were going to follow them and sort of the majority of what we as Muslims believed in, all right? The Shia or Shiite Muslims said no. The people that we're going to follow in our faith have to be a direct descendant bloodline from Muhammad. So the only ones that we're going to follow are those who are family members of Muhammad. So that's where that's separated. So you have the Sunni Muslims who do not believe it's necessary to follow someone who actually can trace their ancestry back to Muhammad, where the Shia or Shiite Muslims believe it is very necessary to trace their leaders and those that they're following back to the bloodline of Muhammad. That's the main difference. Now, Sufi Muslims are actually probably the fastest growing part. And the reason why they're, that is, it's such a huge thing is because Sufi uh, Muslims are really what I call Islamic mystics. And uh, they that form of Islam really appeals to the Buddhists and to the Hindus. They're making great strides in that part of Asia because obviously Buddhism and Hinduism has a lot of mystical stuff with it. And so Sufi uh, Muslims sort of is a hodgepodge between, uh, in some ways, the practices of, of uh, the East and then what they believe, too, as far as you know their Islamic traditional faith. And again, mysticism, in general, is a very fast-growing thing in our world today. And so that's just that sort of part of it. All right? Now, just real quickly, what to believe. I just want to share, just again, some differences here. First of all, about the nature of God. If you read the Quran and you read the Bible, one of the things that's going to stand out to you is just the personal nature of God. For instance, I'll just give you like one. The Bible teaches God does not change. All right? Where the Quran teaches that Allah is sort of a temperamental God and can change his mind and whatever. 
So you've got differences even in the personal nature of God. All right? Also, Bible. God loves sinners. All right? Even while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. God loves the whole world. The Quran teaches, and again, don't take my word for it. Read the Quran. A lot of people think the Quran is a big, huge book. Actually, the Quran is about the third of the size of the Bible as far as its volume goes, all right? Uh, And if you read that, you will find that there's many verses in there that teach that Allah does not love transgressors, all right? Does not love sinners. Loves those who try to, you know, love Him and do good, but does not love transgressors, all right? So again, differences in the personal nature of God. Certainly differences in salvation. Bible teaches Jesus is the only way. It's offered to all. In the Quran, you would read things like that salvation, first of all, is never guaranteed to anyone, and it's really up to how Allah feels at that time, all right? One of the key phrases in Islam is, if God wills, if God wills. And so here again, not to get ahead of myself a little bit, but one of the things that makes their, you know, they believe in that works-based, being good but never really even knowing if being good and that when Allah finally weighs their life on the scales, if the good works are going to outweigh the bad works, even that doesn't matter. Because to the Muslim, okay, and here's the thing, they could live a good life all their life, but if they get to that day of judgment and Allah just in his mind says, eh, I'm going to send you to hell anyway, even though you were good, that's it. That's it. So that's the big difference there. That's a big difference. Getting then down to security. That's why I believe the Bible clearly teaches eternal security, where again, in the Quran, salvation is never guaranteed. In fact, Muhammad, the great prophet of Islam, was not sure where he was going to go when he died. Get that. Muhammad himself did not know where he was going to go when he died. He had Because he said... You know, I've tried to be a prophet of Allah, I've tried to, but it's up, it's up to Allah. If God wills, I'll go to heaven. So even before he died in his writings, he was not sure what was going to happen to him in his eternal destiny. In fact, I'm going to come back to this a little bit. But one of the things that you hear about in our day and age is the whole jihad, holy war thing. And why is that so key? Let me share with you again perspective on it a little bit. When you read the Quran, there are no guarantees of eternity, no matter how good you are. It's if Allah wills, except for, except for, there's some verses in there that imply pretty strongly that if you give up your life for the faith and for Allah, that as good as it can possibly be secure, that you'll go to heaven. So that's why I believe people wonder today, why are all these people in that part of the world willing to blow themselves up and and give themselves and become martyrs? Because again, remember, the worldview that they're coming from is first of all, they could live a good life, their whole life, and that still might not be good enough. And that as they read the Quran, the only thing that is an absolute guarantee of eternal life is to be a martyr. For Allah and for the faith. So no wonder then, in our day and age, as this goes out, 
especially the young people, they're thinking to myself, I could live a, I could live my whole life and try to be a good person and make sure that the scales, you know, tip over. But at the end of the day, the only real security I have is maybe in jihad. And again, I'm going to come back to that. A revelation. Christianity teaches that the Bible is the full and final revelation of God to man and Jesus Christ. All right, the final word from God to man. Well, obviously, uh, the Muslims didn't buy that. Muhammad said that the Bible was not the complete revelation of God, and that's why Allah had to give him the Quran. And uh, so it was. They don't. They don't bash the Bible. They respect the Bible. They even use the Bible, all right? But what they would say is, the Bible's not enough. The Bible's partial. The Bible's not complete. We needed the Quran to come along to sort of complete the picture that was started there in the Bible and even to correct. Because again, if it comes down to it, if the Bible contradicts the Quran, obviously they're going to say the Quran sits in judgment of the Bible, all right? So Revelation, the Trinity, We believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. To a Muslim, that's blasphemy. Allah is one, that's it. There is no Trinity. And to them, what they teach in the Quran and the Hadith, which is the the writing of Muhammad, is that our, our Trinity is not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, they had Mary in there as part of the Trinity to the Muslims, all right? Uh, heaven. To us, the Bible teaches heaven is the worship of Jesus Christ. In the Quran and the Hadith, heaven to them is men sitting on couches being served wine by perpetual virgins. Big difference in heaven, all right? About women. Uh, the Bible teaches that men and women are equal. If you read the Quran, you will find out that that views that men are superior to women, all right? Jesus Christ, again, what can I say? We believe that the Bible clearly teaches Jesus Christ is the Son of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, you know, you name it, Creator, Sustainer of the Universe. To them, Jesus Christ was a good man, He was a follower of Allah, He was actually a prophet of Allah, but here's something else they say, Jesus Christ was never crucified. Muslims deny the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Whoever that was on the cross was not Jesus. Uh, some of them, uh, even Muslim scholars, believe that one of the disciples actually took Jesus' place on the cross and was killed. Uh, so that when Jesus did say, I'm alive, it was like, well, you never died in the first. So they deny the, you know, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, jihad. Probably, you know, the emotional thing about this. You know, what does it say? I just encourage people, I say, look, if you want to know what the Quran says about jihad, read the Quran. Uh, I believe it's pretty clear that uh, the Quran does encourage uh, forced conversion and, and holy war and all of that. In fact, here's what I say to people. I say, look, if you doubt uh, what jihad is all about, go back even in history and look at the life of Muhammad and what he did, who was the leading prophet of Allah. And to me, if you look at him you're going to sort of have a clue as to what he thought jihad and, and how that was to operate. And so to me, that's why a lot of them take their you know, cue from, from that as well. So again, that's a, that's a hot topic, one that's even debated in Muslim circles. Because again, you will have those who say, no, in the Quran, it does not teach us to do this. But you know, we have that problem in what we call Christianity, where you've got two people who read the same verse and come to a 
different conclusion about it, and that's certainly popular or uh, probable. The popular notion, though, that Jews, Christians, and Muslims all worship the same God is really blasphemous to all three religions. And again, it's only founded in modern pluralism. Jews do not worship Jesus, and Muslims do not worship Jesus. So we're not all the same thing. And as I say it here, and I hope I, you know, don't just turn somebody off by saying this, but she is like one of the most vocal modern proponents of this. That's why I call it the gospel according to Oprah. Because that's what she teaches. She's basically one of those people that really pushes that all religions really believe the same thing, and we're all going to end up at this. And, and, you know, that's, she's one of the leading spokespeople for that kind of belief system. And, and we need to stand up and say, no. No, that is not true. How do we earn a hearing with Muslims? Again, I think cultural sensitivity can allow us to earn a hearing uh, from those that we come in contact with and open a line of communication. And I just want to quickly, I know I haven't done a lot of Bible this morning, but I just want to quickly share this passage because this is exactly what Paul says in this passage of Scripture. Listen to what Paul said. If I can find the right passage of scripture, here it is. Paul says this, for since I am free from all, I can make myself a slave to all in order to gain even more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to gain the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to gain those under the law. To those free from the law, I became like one free from the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under the law of Christ, to gain those free from the law. To the weak I became weak in order to gain the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. And all Paul was saying there is simply this. Uh, That is 1 Corinthians chapter 9 beginning at verse 19 through verse 22. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22. And so here's what Paul says to us. He says, we never compromise the message... But it's okay to adapt your methods of reaching people and building bridges with them. And so what Paul would say to me is, if I want to reach a Muslim, I got to become like them in their mind. I've got to be, I got to understand what they believe a little bit, have some kind of basis for it of understanding, which again, what this class was all about, and, and try to, to, to become as much as I can without compromising my faith or what I believe in order to reach them. All right? So a couple of things here, all right? What can I do? Well, first of all, a strict Muslim, it's always offensive if you go up and greet them to ever shake their left hand or to greet them with the left hand. To them in that culture, the right hand is for greeting, the left hand is for hygiene, and neither the twain shall meet. So you would offend them by, even if you're left-handed, trying to force some kind of greeting with the left hand. That's a small, maybe cultural thing, but that's huge to remember. Again, Paul, I'm becoming a Jew to try to reach you. I'm trying to understand. Use the word friend and not brother or sister. One of my friends from back south in the east, where I'm originally from, you know, they always use that, hey, brother, hey, sister. They call everybody brother and sister down there. All right? Well, to call a Muslim a brother or sister is basically to identify that, oh yeah, we're on the same page, we believe the same thing, and that's offensive to them. Friend is fine, but brother and sister sort of says, yeah, we're all family, and, and that's not true. Sort of like that faux pas that 
President Bush and that whole iftar thing. Accept hospitality. To a Muslim, hospitality is huge. And so if, if they would happen to invite you over to their home, for that is huge. You would offend them by not accepting that hospitality. That's just a big deal if you can get to that point. Or, you know, extend hospitality. Again, hospitality is huge in that culture. So to extend hospitality to them and invite them over, all I would say is this. Please make sure that if you're inviting a Muslim family over for dinner, that you have something that they're going to be okay with, too. Again, doing a little research. Not compromising your faith in Christ or anything. Just, again, trying to understand some things, to be culturally sensitive to them and where they come from. Observe conversation protocols. Again, to a strict Muslim, it can be very offensive to see uh, an American man talking to a Muslim woman by himself. So unless you get permission to do that, make sure that you don't cross those conversation protocols. It's okay to do it in a group, but it shouldn't be that one-on-one thing. Again, unless they say, hey, that, that, that's fine, you get that, you know, that cue that that's okay. Be sensitive to their religious observances. All right? Just be sen- like there, Ramadan, when they're observing that, you know, respect what they're doing. Don't rush to evangelize. Uh, again, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some patience. Don't rush to evangelize. Don't knock them over the head the first time you get a chance to talk to them. Avoid politics. <laughs> Center on Jesus Christ. And this is really huge. It really works. All right? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation. Yes, even the Muslims. All right? Be candid about the sins of supposed Christians. Don't sit there and try to defend the Crusades. The Crusades are not defendable by Christians. We, we, the Crusades is really where Christians, or those who call themselves Christians, practice jihad. That's really what the Crusades were. And, and we cannot defend that in any way. That was not biblical. And then remember what conversion will mean to them. To... to The guy that I got this information from, as I said, president of the seminary that I went to, uh, he gave up his family ties for the rest of his life. Uh, When he converted to Christianity, uh, he never saw his mom and dad alive again. They disowned, I mean, that's just the way it is. So you, you and I have to understand, you know, we convert to Christianity, we say yes to Christ, you know, we might get a little persecution at work or something like that, or somebody might see us carrying a Bible around and say some smart remark or something like that, or they might see a cornerstone sticker and say something. But that's about it. For these folks to accept and embrace Christ, it's huge. And so we have to understand what conversion is going to mean to them. Just real quick, what's the message then we need to get to them? Well, for most converts from Islam, the finished and atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross speaks very powerfully. They have learned that freedom in Christ means liberation from a works-based salvation and the fear of the scales. I mean, all their life, they are living in fear of the scales. That my good works will amount to enough that when Allah judges me, He's going to say, yeah, come on into heaven. I mean, so you've got to understand then, for us to give them a message that through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, all your sins are forgiven. And... And you don't have to try to be good enough to somehow have God accept you into His kingdom. 
That is huge for them. That, that's something that usually falls on, if they're open at all, to very welcoming ears. Emphasize the forgiveness of Christ of all sin and the payment of the debt owed. Again, that's foreign to them, but that's something that if they're searching and God is working in their heart, that's huge. Secondly, Islam does not know an intimate, personal, and loving God. Allah is an impersonal creator and judge. In fact, the only term of intimacy connected with Allah in the Quran refers to a threat of judgment. And here's what it says. Allah is as close as your jugular, jugular vein. That is the only intimate thing that it says about Allah. So here's the contrast. When you start talking about the omnibenevolence of Christ on the cross and the transcendent love, it overwhelms the Muslim mind. Because to them, all they've ever known is this impersonal God who really doesn't want to connect with them in a personal relationship uh, and that he is primarily looked at one day as the judge that they've got to stand before. All right? Uh, for them to understand that God loved them enough to die for them and wants to have a personal relationship with them, again, if they're open, that really can overwhelm the Muslim mind. When privileged to speak to a Muslim about faith, the Christian must be prepared to demonstrate that the Bible gives evidence within itself that it is completely trustworthy. And so this behooves us as Christians to study the Word of God enough to not be proven ignorant of the Bible's own claims because if that be true, the Muslim is going to say, you're not worthy of having any further conversation with. Because again, one of the rubs of Muslims is you Christians aren't as committed to your faith as we are to ours. And a lot of times I can't argue. I mean, I'll say one thing. I think they're wrong. I think they're dead wrong about what they believe. But they're a lot more committed sometimes to what they believe than what Christians believe. And so when they engage a Christian, they're going to want to see, does this Christian even know anything about the Bible that they say that they follow and whatever? That's really huge. And so I just had a, a couple verses I wanted to throw out to you that really are key for Muslims. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. This is the verses that Jesus himself in his day believed the very words of the Old Testament were inspired by God and could not be corrupted. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. 2 Timothy 3, 16 is another huge verse in dealing with Muslims. The Apostle Paul believed that the words of the Bible were breathed out of the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16. Then 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. The Apostle Peter believed that the person of the Holy Spirit communicated to the writers of the Bible exactly how it was to be transmitted. Now, in themselves, these verses will not convince the Muslim of the veracity of the Bible, but they will provide a very important foundation for discussion. Because again, what you're telling that Muslim is this. I know that in my Bible, my Bible has these verses that say it is completely trustworthy, and that will really be huge with them. It really is. A couple other things, and I've got to ask some questions here. Christians need to communicate their faith wisely and biblically. 1 Peter 3.15 Set apart Christ Jesus as Lord in your hearts and be always ready to give an answer to every man who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 1 Peter 3.15 and then, of course, I, I already quoted Romans 1.16. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. Share the Bible. Share those verses if they're open to it. 
There is power in the Word of God. Don't be ashamed of the Bible. It's got power. And then here's, this is huge, and this comes from, again, the Muslim people that I know who've converted to Christianity, and here's what they say. The greatest witness that Christians can have towards Muslims in, in showing the reality of our faith, love. And it, that's what Jesus said. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, This is how men will know that you are my disciples, because of the love that you have for one another. And, and you and I, if we love them, and we continue to love them, and love them, and love them, and love them, I'm telling you, love is powerful. And, and the Muslims that I know of, who, who come out of Islam, who've converted to Christianity, the big thing that they always say is, it was the love of that Christian, or the love of that Christian family, that really began to work in my heart. You cannot, we cannot, overstate the importance of love in reaching anybody for Christ, but especially these folks. We've got to love, 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 love. All right. Questions? Yes, Lisa. You mean, does the Quran claim to be the authoritative? Yes. Yes. And, and again, the Quran basically respects the Bible you know, a Muslim will respect the Muslims are very respectful of Jesus Christ because, again, remember, they believe that Jesus Christ was a prophet of Allah. They're not going to bash Jesus Christ and they're not going to bash the Bible. Their primary thing is that, that the Quran is a continuation and that it had to make some corrections in what the Bible said. Right. That, that would be something that would definitely begin to ring in their ears. Yeah. Yes. Again, if you go back and you study the life of Muhammad and how that all operated, basically it's forced conversion. They believed a couple things. When they went into a country, they would force the worship of Allah. If you were not willing to do that, and as long as you paid tribute to them and paid money, then they would leave you alone. You didn't have much else of a choice or it was, it was death. So again, you've got to understand, in their, in their mindset, they believe that they have a mandate uh, from their God to basically take Islam all over the world, and if people won't submit to it, then they're going to have to be, for their own good, forced into that that belief system. Yeah, I do know this too. Of course, they refer to Jesus as Isa, I S A. That's that's when 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 you hear Isa, that's Jesus. Okay, and they believe Jesus is going to come back, but that after he comes back, I think 40 to 50 days later, he dies. So again, they don't believe that he's God. They don't believe that he's divinity in any way. Uh, but when you hear Isa, that, that is Jesus. Yes. They would say that our Bible has been corrupted. That what was originally intended got, got into the hands of people like Peter and Paul and Luke and all these Bible writers, and that they corrupted it. And so what we have, if it contradicts that, was just corrupted portions of, of the Bible or the scriptures. That's probably one of the simple ways I could answer. Yeah. That's my son, by the way, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, here's a ver- in, in, in uh, what I call, they call it, it's not a chapter, it's called a surah. In uh, the 19th chapter, the 30th verse, here's what it says Jesus, I am the worshiper of Allah. Allah has given me the book and made me a prophet. All right. So, again. Yeah, that's in the Quran. Yeah. Yes. Yes, here's my answer. 
Genesis to Revelation, that's it. That's it. Anything added to that, yes, I believe is a corruption. Yep, plain and simple. Yes. Well, it even goes, like I said, it, it really, in some ways, starts with Isaac and Ishmael, but it even intensifies with Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. And it just goes into the con- conflict that those two people, and then God even said, you're not just two people. You're going to be the leaders of two nations and two groups of people. And there's going to be this conflict between the two of you throughout history. So it was just something that God knew was going to happen, and it was just that rivalry that started, in a sense, between two brothers, uh, two half-brothers, however you want to look at it. And then even into Isaac's family, when Isaac uh, and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau, same thing, that rivalry between them two and how they were just going to be in conflict. So, yeah, I'd encourage you to go back and read those chapters in Genesis. They're fascinating to see how that whole conflict really does start to boil. Oh, yeah, we, we, what we're sharing with you really started with Muhammad and, and his getting the revelation from Allah to, to the people. Yeah, before that, you know, they would say, hey, before Muhammad, what, what was there? Yeah, exactly. When Muhammad come on the scene, though, and says, I got a revelation from God, but let me just throw this out. And I, I got to let you guys go. If you have questions... Because I was told that because of our 45-minute services in the building walkthrough, especially those of you that got children, they're going to be like, can they come back and get their children <laughs> instead of... But anyway, uh, Muhammad was not sure. Okay, And he even writes this in the Hadith, his own you know, personal journal. He was not sure when he was getting the Quran whether it was really the messages from God or from Satan. And he even writes that. So you're like, oh, okay, this is interesting. So you know, he even wrestled with the fact is this really coming from God or is this coming from some other source? He totally is up front and admits that in, in his writings. He's very forthright with that. I mean, Muhammad's very, he says, look, I'm not God, I'm a sinner. You know, he, he doesn't claim to be a Jesus, you know, but he does claim to be the prophet of Allah with the, the words of Allah, you know, type of thing. You know, I'm not familiar with that, but let me just quickly, and I don't think they'll mind, uh, the Zumanis and the Kalettas are up, up front here, and these, these folks are great. They're in my small group on Friday night, and uh, that's their background. Uh, they are now born-again Christians who love God. Yeah, exactly. And uh, who want to who wanna reach, you know, Muslims and everybody with, with what Christ has done in their life. So I'd encourage you, uh, I don't think they would mind it. You've got like those cultural aspects and things like that. That's totally out of my league. And like I said, I'm not an expert on this at all. I just wanted to share with you some things that I have learned from, like I said, a friend of mine who was a former Sunni Muslim and grew up in that faith and now is president of a seminary and all of that. And there's some good resources out there. Uh, in fact, one that I'd like to give you is, is to go on his website uh, it's www.ergencaner.com, and you spell Ergen, E-R-G-U-N, Caner, C-A-N-E-R. He is president of Liberty Seminary in Lynchburg, Virginia. Again, a former Sunni Muslim. He's got all kinds of resources. He's written several books with his brother. Uh, Unveiling Islam is one of them, where I sort of got the idea for Behind the Veil and all of that. Uh, excellent book. Kimmy, what's the one you're reading that he wrote? More Than a Prophet. More Than a Prophet. Kimmy's now reading a book by Ergen Kainer and his brother called More Than a Prophet. He's got all those books on his website. 
He's got those differences and all of that on his website. It's a gold mine for wanting to learn more about it. He's really good. Sure, if you want to, yeah. Great families. I love having them in my small group. And guys, I'm going to be in big trouble if I don't dismiss. But let me just say this. Let me just say this. If you want to come up and ask me a question or Ali or Danny, they'll, I'm sure, be glad to do that. Thank you all for How many did we have here, Kimmy? 94. 94. Super, super. Thank you, guys. Hey, have a great day. All right? We'll see you later.